The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. We are still studying the subject, Who is the Holy Spirit? We're getting close to the end of our study now, just a couple of more lessons and we'll be through. And I hope that throughout this study you have found some things that will help you and some information that's very useful to you. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus used his last hours with the apostles to do a great deal of teaching about the Holy Spirit. And that was necessary because they needed the power for their preaching. They needed encouragement to preach. They also needed to have the Holy Spirit with them because of the terrible persecutions that they would encounter for the preaching of the gospel. The power that they drew on was the Holy Spirit's power. Uh, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and that he would be in them. And he, he, even though he said that he had to leave them, he said that he would leave his abiding presence with them. He gave them something much better than having him there in a physical location. But the Holy Spirit would come to live in them and he would be the power in them to do all the work that he, that he wanted them to do. Now the Holy Spirit would dwell in them at all times. And we have that same promise today that the Holy Spirit dwells in us all of the time. Now our study has been to look at the many different works that the Holy Spirit does how he is active in the life of believers. And we've covered many of the positive aspects of this, many different works that the believer can depend on and are vital for success in our Christian lives. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. He sanctifies us. He leads us according to the will of the Father. He fills us and he enables us to respond to the commands that God gives in a godly way. And He's given us this power that we have for preaching and all the other works that are done in the church that will magnify Jesus Christ. But there is a problem. Uh, There are massive amounts of power that are available to us as Christians, and yet there is an enemy that's determined to stop God's power. And that enemy may do it by tempting you to evil. He may do it by trying to tear down your testimony. He may try to destroy your influence with family and friends, and he entices you to live out of your old nature rather than embracing the new man that's been created in righteousness and holiness. Now, unfortunately, that is the place where most Christians live today, that most Christians are really living out of the old man, and they live there without any conscience. And so they come to church and they listen to the sermons, Or maybe I shouldn't say that they're listening, but rather they just hear the sermons. But it doesn't seem like that they're really taking very much in because it doesn't produce a change in their lives. James wrote in James chapter 1, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, the looking glass or the mirror that we should be looking into is into the perfect law of God. But there are many Christians who believe that God's law is useless, that we have actually been set free from the law, and so we don't have to worry about commandments anymore. But the apostles say, not so, but you must continually live by God's law. 
The law doesn't save us, but it's always useful for finding the dirt that's in our lives, the sin that needs to be repented of and washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures say that the blood of Christ, after we're saved, keeps on cleansing us from sin. And so what we need to be sure to do is to take daily trips to that fountain of the blood of Jesus Christ in repentance, asking God to renew us to the commitment that we've made to him every single day. Now, I wish I had more time to speak on that particular subject, but I really need to move on. And I just mentioned this tonight because I don't want you to ever forget that it is the Holy Spirit's power that keeps these processes alive in us on a daily basis. Uh, the Holy Spirit brings you to holiness and to those things that are well-pleasing to the Lord. But this evening, we need to go a little bit further in our study. And so I want us to look at the... Uh, just look at a few verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I, and I do hope you find that our topic tonight will be of some interest to you. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse number 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? I was listening to a program on television this morning just as I was eating breakfast and before I got ready to to come to church and there was a program where the preacher was preaching and he started speaking in tongues and then all the congregation started speaking in tongues and one of the points that he made as he was doing all of this and all this stuff was going on he said now when people come in here and they see us doing this won't they say that there's something mystical happening here won't they say that there's something powerful that's going on here and won't they say that there's something uh, the power of god is here here's what the apostle paul says that they will say that you come they come into the service and they're going to say you people are crazy you people are mad but if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of the heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three and that by course and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge the prophets there speaking of preachers. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace for you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And that verse simply means that a person who is preaching the word of God is never out of control. There's nothing that, that, that's, that's beyond his control. But he, he is always, in, in when, he's, when he's preaching in the spirit and when he's given the word of God, that there is a sense of control. He always has his faculties about him. Not like we see today. It's going on in the charismatic movement. Then he goes on, he says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak 
in the church. Now, I think most of you have been here for uh, all of our lessons, maybe only missing a couple here and there. So I'm not going to go back all the way to the beginning to go back to everything that we talked about before. So we're in the fourth part of our outline in which we're talking about the abuse of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's truly a, a spiritually moving and an uplifting feeling to know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Paul said that the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if you know Christ and the assurance that you feel about your salvation and the guarantee that you know that if you were to die right now that you would go to heaven, that's an, uh, that's not only, it's not just an objective reality because you have believed the truth, but this is also a subjective reality. And I never mean to say by this that that salvation is based upon some warm, fuzzy feeling. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any emotional aspects to our salvation. I mean, I couldn't imagine anything that's worse than to be a believer and to be cold and dead and lifeless and never feel like you have more than just a grasp of just some facts that have been packed into your head. I mean, if that's what you expect out of your Christianity, then you, you could be content to curl up with a, with a history book, with a science book, and just cram your head with all sorts of facts. There is truly a subjective side to our Christianity. But just like every other part of us, every other part of our faith in Christ, Satan tries to exploit the subjective. I mean, our subjective knowledge of the Holy Spirit still has to be based in the objective reality of the Word of God. But since Satan is intent upon destroying God's word, he tries to move the subjective side of Christianity outside of the limitations of the Bible. And so he twists it and he perverts it and he throws people off, causing them to overthrow the scriptures in feeling in favor of their feelings. And that's the reason that there are so many wild, outlandish claims that are made by those in the charismatic movement. They have thrown off the objective truths of the Word of God, and they've replaced those things with visions and dreams and emotions and felt needs. Now, if you watch some of their services on TV, you just take note of this, that there's hardly ever a step-by-step approach to the exposition of the Word of God. If scriptures are used, they are twisted, they're taken out of context in order to support this next outburst of what I would call Holy Ghost silliness. Now, that's not really the part I want to speak about tonight. But we'll notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 how that the Apostle Paul gives a specific order concerning the church worship service. He shows us here how it's to be conducted. Now, in his time, the sign gifts were still operating. They were still being used. Although by the time that we get to 1 Corinthians in the writing of this book, these gifts were decreasing. They were on their way out. But we notice in verses 26 through 31 that Paul gives a very strict protocol for the use of the gift of tongues. Now, the problem of the Corinthian church was that they were prideful and they were arrogant in their use of the gifts. And so the people would get together and they would have just one noisy, chaotic service with each person trying to take over things and trying to to, to speak in their tongues or to prophesy or do whatever they're going to do, talking over one another, producing a chaotic service. And so in verse number 26, Paul says, what's going on here? Somebody is singing a psalm. At the same time, somebody's expounding a scripture, and then somebody, or more than somebody's, are are speaking in tongues. 
Somebody is shouting above all of that, trying to give an interpretation. And he says, this is a chaotic mess. And what Paul has just described is the typical charismatic service that you watch on TBN. And so he settles them down from that. And he says, you fellows need to simmer down. Turn off the afterburners. Get some order into what you're doing. At most, only two or three people are to speak, and they must speak in turns, and then let someone have a turn to interpret. And then he goes on, he says, let the preachers speak, let two or three of them speak, and let them take their turn, and then the others judge the truth that's been said. So let everybody speak in turn and keep a decently ordered service so that everybody can get something out of it. And in the last message, I highlighted some of those issues by pointing out that preaching is the most important thing that's done in the service, and that confusion is nothing but conflict, it can't help. And we looked at the purpose of tongues, and we showed how they had outlived their usefulness. They did the job that they were supposed to do in the time that they were given, and now that job is done, and they're no longer needed. So those headings that we talked about in the, in the last message were covet preaching, confused speaking, And correct instruction that we are to covet preaching because it's the top priority and we're to stay away from confused speaking tongues are not helpful today. And then we are to accept the correct instruction about tongues because it comes from uh, it comes from the sacred word of God. So what we need to do is to find out what the tongues were for. Let's get the correct instruction. And when we do. As we looked over it last week, God used those for the time and the place that was needed, and then he took those things away. Well, we're still talking about abuses of the Holy Spirit, and we still do need to talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing and what he's not doing. The New Testament gives us instruction about worship. What are we to do in these services? Well, what can we do that is God-honoring, that is God-pleasing, that is spirit-controlled worship? Now, is that something that we pray for? Well, well, it is. There's a song that we sing that says, Holy Spirit, Thou art welcome in this place. Omnipotent Father of mercy and grace, Thou art welcome in this place. And that song is actually an invitation for the Holy Spirit to come and for Him to direct every move that we make in worship. I don't want to be without Holy Spirit power, do you? Of course, we want the Holy Spirit to be with us. Well, we need to investigate something here that's widespread in churches, and it has to do with the main part of our worship. Preaching, again, is the main part of worship. I mean, if we forget a song, we can do without a song. If we forget a prescribed prayer, then we could could do without that prayer. If we forget a liturgy, we could certainly do without that. We can get along. But we can't forget the preaching of the word of God. We might forget to stand up and sit down when we're supposed to, when Brother Dalton says do it. You might forget that. You can do without that. But what you cannot do without is the preaching of the word of God. So there may be room to remove some of those other things or to forget them at times, but we cannot remove the word of God. There will never be a time to remove the right apostolic form of preaching. And I think that means the Content of what is spoken, that's very important. The content of what is spoken, but also the person who speaks it, that's very important to us. 
Now, we've talked about content a lot. You hear me preach about that a lot. So now let's talk about the speaker. What about the speaker? Is the Holy Spirit or can the Holy Spirit be abused by allowing the wrong speaker? Well, let's take a look at this again. Look at verse number 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Now, we stop right there. As you know, there didn't used to be verse divisions in the Scripture. Now, we thank God that somebody put them there because it sure makes it easier for us to find things. And sometimes the divisions in the verses are very good, and sometimes they're not so good. Verse number 33 should have ended where we stopped. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And then verse number 34 should begin at this point. As in all churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, this is what I want to talk to you about tonight. This evening, our subject is commanded regulation, that God has a regulation that he has commanded concerning the speakers in the church. Now, is the Holy Spirit directing our worship or is the Holy Spirit directing a different type of worship that we just don't get? Well, there are some who do this differently and they say that they are working under the power of the Holy Spirit. Are they right about that or are they actually abusing his power? Well, here's where the regulation, the command for the regulation of speakers in the church comes in. Now, we can obviously speak of the content, but critically important here in this scripture is who is qualified to speak. And we have as clear a command about this in this scripture as can be found anywhere in the Bible. Here, Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, the Spirit is the one who gave us the word of God. He is the director of our worship. And Paul says in this scripture that women are to keep silent in the church. He says they are not permitted to speak. And he pounds that silence home with three statements. The first one is they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. The second is if they want to learn, ask their husbands at home. And the third is that it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, we're going to take a look at these three statements, and we're going to try to understand what Paul means by these statements. He starts with commanding silence. And here's the place where all the men are supposed to say amen. I mean, there has to be a place where we can get some silence. It's a little bit of silence. Well, he commands silence from women in the church. Why does he do that? Well, he gives us the answer. He says it's a pattern that has been established by God's law. Now, I know that there are many that argue that Paul's prohibition against women speaking in the church was because he didn't like women, that he had this bias against them. And what he really wanted to do was to push women down, keep them in the background and not allow them to have any part of church services, just to treat women like the Jews had always done. And I'm sure that you're all familiar with this. We talked about it in our Galatians series, the the prayer that was prayed by the Pharisees, the Jewish people. God, I thank thee that I was not born a slave, I was not born a Gentile, and I was not born a woman. And so they think that what Paul did was try to push the women down, and this is why he gives the prohibition in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, you can really shove all of that to the side 
because there was no one in the history of the world to this point that ever did as much for women as Paul did. Because Paul is the one who showed that the new covenant that has been made in Christ has caused us to be all equal in God's eyes. He's the one that said that there are no Jews and Gentiles. He said there are no Jews and Greeks. He said there are no slaves or free men to God. He said there are no males or females to God. And that doesn't mean that there aren't any distinctions. It means that God does not look at a person's race. He doesn't look at their economy. He doesn't look at their sex in order to determine who is righteous. But that we all stand equally justified before God Paul says, for you're all the children of God by faith. But you have those that say that Paul was prejudiced. And so that is their excuse to dismiss his teaching in 1 Corinthians. Now, others are a little more or a little bit cleverer. They are sanctimonious objectors. And so they say, well, this was Paul's day. That was in the first century. And what he's talking about here is a cultural thing in Corinth. It's not binding on us today. Well, maybe you could get away with that if it wasn't for what he said next. The text says, as in all churches of the saints, he's not just talking about Corinth or Greek cities, in all churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak. That is not a cultural prohibition. This is not based upon a geographical location. It's not even based upon a particular time period. Because right after he says it's not permitted unto them to speak, he says, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. Now, the problem in Corinth was that women were speaking in tongues and women prophesied. And Paul is telling them this is not correct in the church setting. This is not permitted. Now, today in charismatic churches, it's the women are often the chief among those that speak in tongues. And as you well know, they don't have any problem with women preachers. I'm going to come back to that one in just a few minutes. This is not a cultural issue that we're dealing with. This is a scriptural principle that stretches all through the entire length of Scripture. He says they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith The law. Well, what law is he speaking of? This is the law of submission, which goes all the way back into the Old Testament, even all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And it's actually one of the consequences of the fall. And this cannot be removed until the curse has been removed from this earth. In fact, it's useful for us because it's actually patterned after the submission of Christ to his heavenly father. Now, you remember the story how that God told Eve that because she had partaken of the forbidden fruit, that she and every other woman in the future would be in subjection to their husband. In Genesis 3.16, God said to her, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That is a principle of law that does not change. It's the order of creation, and it will never change until Christ comes to lift the curse from this world. Now, in deference to that law, recognizing what God said in Genesis chapter 3, the Jews would never let women speak in the synagogues. 
Now, no doubt that Paul had this issue in mind because he never gives any New Testament text where there is a different command. He never says anywhere in Scripture that it's okay for women to speak in the public assembly. But we have very clear Scripture that says that it's not. Now, let me say, though, that this doesn't mean that women have no ministry in the church. And it doesn't mean that women are inferior. It simply means that God has his regulations and we are to serve when and where God tells us to serve. And the only way that we're going to be in the will of God is when we follow the instructions that God has given in the word. I came across something that was interesting and probably one of the most foolish things that I ever heard on this subject. I was reading and studying what one Baptist preacher had to say about this, and he didn't think that silence meant silence, that he thought that it was all right for women to speak in the church, although he did agree that women are not supposed to preach. And so as a demonstration of it, he called his wife to the platform and had her introduce his sermon. And then he said, did we break the scriptures by doing this? And he said, no, because I gave my wife permission to speak. Well, that blew my mind. So as a pastor and a husband, I can tell my wife that you can come up here on the platform and you can say anything that you want to say just as long as you don't preach. Well, let's skip down to verse number 36. Paul says here, what came the word of God out from you or came it to you only? You know what this is? This is what we call Paul's sanctified sarcasm. What he's saying here. He anticipated their objections. He knew all about feminism forever it started. He knew that there were going to be sorry preachers without a backbone that would not stand as straight on an arrow as an arrow on the word of God. And so he said, do you think that you can interpret the scriptures any way that you want? Did you write the scriptures? If you didn't, then you are also in subjection to scriptural authority, just like the woman is to be in subjection to her husband. You see, what we have is God's word. You can't alter God's word. You you can't change anything here. You can't correct it because you think it needs to be something better. This is why women do not speak in the assembly of Berean Baptist Church when we come to worship together as a church. I stay away from women giving testimonies and making announcements. And this is not the only place that Paul speaks about silence. In First Timothy, he said, let the women or let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, here's what I feel about it. Rather than to confuse people and get into an argument about what is taking authority over the man and when is a woman allowed to speak and when she not allowed to speak, I don't think that we need to confuse people with that. And try to make all these different kinds of arguments. I mean, why in the world we want to open ourselves up to that kind of controversy? We don't allow women to make announcements. They don't give testimonies. And it's not demeaning. It's not belittling. It's serving God according to his regulations. And when somebody gets another authority, when they get something else from the Holy Spirit, come and tell me about it. Only I know that you're not because the Bible says the word of God is settled forever. The word of God settled forever. It's not going to change. So God's not going to reverse himself on anything that's in his word. Now, let me also say that men, you are not off the hook. Because in verse number 35, after saying that women are commanded to be silent, he says, and if they will learn anything, 
Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Well, there we find the second statement that we need to examine. Let them ask their husbands at home. This tells us, men, that you are to be the spiritual head of your home. And you are to know the word of God. You are to be a student of the word of God. So that if your wife has a question about what's preached in the sermons or she needs to know something, she needs to be able to go to you and ask you what the Bible means. You need to be able to answer her questions. Now, I understand that you're not going to be able to answer all questions. I get plenty of questions in the forum class on Sunday mornings that can be very, very difficult questions. And you may not know all the answers, but at least you ought to be this. You ought to be a man that is in pursuit of the word of God, of learning the word of God so that you can teach your family and teach your wife what God's word says. And it's poor spiritual heads of the family that have caused women to reach out into these other roles and to take up the man's ministry. It's because men many times are too sorry to do it. And that doesn't make it right. I mean, it just confuses things more for the women to get mixed up in it. But at least we can understand a little bit a reason why that they might do it. It's because their husbands are not taking the proper spiritual authority in their home. Well, let's look at the third statement. It is a shame for women to speak in the church. Why? Because it's rebellion against God. It upsets God's good order. It's a violation of this time-honored principle. And so when women step outside of the God-given role in the church, nothing but evil comes from it. Now, it's evil to start with when they do it. And I can tell you, if it continues, it's a rapidly downward spiral into horrible, heretical doctrine. Let me show you. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. If you don't like what Paul says, then you can just listen to what Jesus says as he speaks directly to the church at Thyatira. Now, the seven churches in Asia that we find in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are representative of all churches in all ages. And Jesus addresses a practice here. I mean, he has just pegged a practice that's alive and well today. Now, he commended the church at Thyatira for a few things, and that's the usual pattern that we find as you study these seven churches. So he commends them, and then he goes on to church problems. Now, we notice verse number 20. Revelation 2, verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. That's after he's commended them for the good. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Now, the fornication that he's talking about there is not... It's not physical adultery, although it could be in this case. But most likely what he's talking about is the idolatry of going against the word of God and setting up a God in your own mind and doing what you want to do. And so that's the fornication that he's talking about, the fornication of idolatry. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their sin, of their deeds. So he's saying all of those who follow this woman and listen to her preaching, that's that's an adultery. And I'm going to put all of these people into her bed, and I will kill her children with death, and the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now, this is some pretty tough stuff that Jesus says here. And since we're not studying Revelation, let me just give you the short version of it. 
Thyatira had a woman preacher. Now, they were way ahead of the modern curve. And the name that Jesus used to refer to this woman preacher is Jezebel. Now, that's not her real name. Her real name is not Jezebel. But this is what he says about a woman that gets into the pulpit to preach. He says she is a Jezebel. In other words, she's like this heathen, loathsome person that we find in 1 Kings, the one who was the arch nemesis of Elijah. Now, can you imagine being called Jezebel? I mean, that's a name that's so bad that in the history of the world, I don't know of anybody that names their kids Jezebel. Do you? Have you seen any of the little girls running around? Their mom named them Jezebel. I mean, it's a name like Judas. You don't hear anybody named Judas. And so moms don't name their little girls Jezebel. Jezebel was a very, very wicked woman. She was an idolater. And she went beyond the subtle baby killing that we find today where you have you know, people that have abortions and they kill the baby in the womb. She was way beyond that because she would take little children and she would sacrifice them to heathen gods. This is why nobody calls a child Jezebel. And then Jesus spoke and he said, there are some Jezebels. There are some women preachers. Well, that probably brings some things to your mind, doesn't it? Some that you've heard. The one that comes to my mind is Joyce Meyer. And I think that she would be better called Jezebel Meyer because she's not godly. The Holy Spirit does not lead her. Now, does she ever say some good things? Well, of course she does. Does she ever say anything that's right? Of course she does. The devil never speaks to the religious with outlandish, easy contradictions of Scripture. He hides and he manipulates and he makes the false seem true. Now, in the case of Joyce Meyer, as she became more popular... She was emboldened to preach heretical doctrine. You, you just, if you've listened to her, if you listen all the way through, you're going to find some very terrible heretical doctrine that she preaches. But that's the way it works. Because once a person has been ingrained, once they've been accepted, then the Bible becomes a plaything in their hands. They can do anything that they want to, do anything with it they want. Now, what really gets my goat, though, is the men who sit in the audience and eat that stuff up. And I wonder what sorry man is going to sit in a congregation to listen to a woman preacher. And I've determined that as a spineless, flim-flam sissy in pink underwear, I think. That's the kind that would do that. Then there's another one. There's Paula White. She's another big-time preacher. Her name was... Splashed all over the papers not long ago for an alleged affair that she had with Benny Hinn. Now, those are two world-class heretics that deserve each other. And, and it's not surprising that you find churches where they allow women to speak and to preach that they become terribly wrong and they get mixed up on all kinds of moral issues. There's no compass there. They're outside of the Word of God. And so they have all these messed up doctrinal issues that they deal with, too. And what they have done is they have upset the balance of nature and of the church. Now, there are many denominations, even Baptists among them, that will allow women preachers. There are some Baptist churches that do that. Lutherans will do it. Presbyterians have some. Episcopalians, they have their women clerics. But the big ones, I mean, the ones that really get their names out and the ones that are leading the pack in all of this, it's the charismatic churches. It's the ones in the word of faith movement. We have a pamphlet in the hall that makes this statement. 
It's a little track that we have out there on the charismatic movement. Here's what it says. The charismatic movement encourages women to forsake their God-given place in the home and in the church. This results in disorderly homes and disorderly churches with women assuming places of leadership in direct violation of the word of God. It is strange, inconsistent, and sad to hear charismatics using the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians to justify speaking in tongues as a gift of the Spirit for our day when that very same chapter says plainly, let your women keep silence in the churches. To counterman God's command to women is dangerous for women, for the home, and for the church. I think that's a pretty good assessment of the whole situation. And I remind you again, we go back to Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus said, uh, I will... Now, this, this author, what does he say? He says that it's, uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for women, the home, and for the church. And Jesus said, just to show you how dangerous, and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works." And so what Jesus is saying here, that those who follow those ways of ungodliness and those who believe the false doctrines that they teach, they'll end up where? He says in the tribulation, they will go down with the Antichrist. If they do not turn from the idolatry, they'll find themselves in the pit of hell. Now, let me just make one more point and then we'll be through. A woman cannot pastor a church because it upsets God's authority But we also have to consider the qualifications that are given in Scripture for a pastor. We find these in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then, now bishop of course is pastor, same same thing. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, as you look over those characteristics or those qualifications, they all have the touch of a man, don't they? He says the husband of one wife. He talks about ruling their houses well. And aren't those principles that are already outlined in the word of God? Now, back again in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul said, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. How can you preach without authority? How could you ever pastor a church without authority? I mean, hopefully, as you listen to me and as you come to church and I pastor this church, you at least think that I have some authority to do this. I have authority that comes from God himself. I have authority that's given to me by the church because you agree with the calling. There's authority that takes place here. You can't teach the church. You can't pastor the church without authority. And let Paul says Paul says specifically here that a woman cannot usurp authority over the man. 
That rules out a woman preacher, a woman pastor. It can't happen. But it's all around us everywhere. I mean, you can't preach without exercising authority. God's not going to lead people in this direction. These are people that abuse the spirit. They claim works of the spirit that he does not do. Well, it is all around us. Am I wrong to point it out? Am I wrong to insist that we use only the Bible as our true rule of faith and practice? Is that wrong for me to do that? Am I wrong to insist that we take the Bible and we believe it word for word? Am I wrong to say that we should not explain the Bible away for it to be culturally sensitive and politically correct? I don't have to answer to the world. I don't have to answer to the church down the street. I answer to God. And I will not abuse the Holy Spirit's power. You know why I won't? I'm too scared to. I'm too scared to do that. There's no way in the world I'm going to usurp God's authority. We've got to do what God says. The book of Psalms says in 111, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. So, you know, I think I've got this. I, I think I'm on my way to being wise. And I'm not going to be cut off on my way to being wise and have the Lord knock me around for allowing something like that to happen in our church. It's just not going to happen here, not as long as I'm here. We keep the authority where it's supposed to be, the God-given authority, the instructions, the commanded regulation that God has given, and we stick to that, and we stick to that, and we don't do anything else. We do what the Scripture says. That is abuse of the Holy Spirit, and we don't want to be guilty of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together tonight. Lord, as we talk about these kinds of things, we know that we are just bucking the trend of those who call themselves Christians today, that in churches all over the United States and all across the world, this is a command that is ignored. It's pushed aside as if it was never said. Lord, we have enough confidence in your word to believe every word is true. And we're to take every word as being commanded and to follow those commands. And when we cease to do that, we can no longer be called a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to stand firm on your word, not to abuse the Holy Spirit, but to honor and glorify him as he should be honored. Be with us tonight, Lord. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.